I'm Audrey Bellis. And I'm Yvette Montoya. And you're listening to Brown Girls Rising, a worthy women podcast in partnership with Nylon and Español. We tell stories about femme leaders and activists of color, making our world a better place. Let's get started. Today with Gloria Lucas. Gloria is the founder of Nalgona Positivity Pride, a Chicana brown indigenous project that focuses on intersectional body positivity, eating disorder awareness, and cultural affirmation. Gloria, it is such a pleasure to have you. Welcome to Brown Welcome. Girls Rising. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. This is my first uh, podcast interview. So, oh no, no, it's not. Never mind. <laughs> She's like, just kidding. What have you yeah. done before? I have done. Um, one of my friends' podcast. Um, oh gosh, I don't remember the name. When she started, it was brand new. She hadn't even released it, but um, it the podcast is all about love, mm. and um, she wanted to definitely include something about body positivity. And she contacted me, and now she's a great friend. So I was able to make a friend out of it. So fun. Yay. Oh, and <laughs> self love is totally the way to even begin this. Like, I mean, because body positivity is all about self love. But before we jump into that, I have to tell you, I love, love, love the name Nalgona Positivity Pride because I'm totally a Nalgona. <laughs> my whole family, the Muñiz butts on my mom's side, we are known for being Nalgonas. And Hashtag that- Muñiz butts. The Muñiz butt. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I would say mine, my mom's, and my sister's are the biggest out of everybody. And we have a lot of cousins and a lot of the S. Ours are like ridiculously large. But yeah, that's not a problem that I have or something I, I, <laughs> I kind of wish. I know it's cool to have a big butt now. And I'm just like, man. If you'd have told me that in the 90s when everybody was thin and I wish I could have gotten rid of my nalga and now I have it. Well, I've always had it. But now it's trendy and it's cool and people are trying to get bigger butts. And I'm like, my mama gave me this. Oh, with the name, you know, I, I like to explain it as not being just for big butts. I just say we all have a big, big but in our hearts. So I, I have it's that. for all kinds of butts, even pancake butts or square butts <laughs> or bubble butts, whatever. You know, most of us have a booty. So that's I think that's the main message is, you know, we're all different. I it's love a, that. It's a great name. It really is a great name. It reminds me of like being like when we hashtag super chingona. Now I want to hashtag mm. super nalgona. Like it, it feels like it's an unapologetic name. And I love that. Right, right. Yeah, and it's actually, it was one of my friends who I've known for a couple of years now from from Riverside, and he identifies as a live drag, like he dresses drag to his job everywhere. Amazing. And um, we used to work together, and he said, oh, it's because we are not going out positive. And I just started laughing. I thought it was such a cute name, and from there, that's how MPP started from that moment. Yeah. And how did you start like curating? What kind of content do you really focus on for Nalgona Positivity? Well, Nalgona Positivity, probably when it started, it wanted to be, the project was meant to be for all women of color. But as I started uh, with the project, I noticed that I need to speak from my own experience. And from there, I just made it into the Chicana Brown Indigenous 
identity. Um, and it is a body positive project that focuses in this community that I just mentioned. And uh, our priorities are creating awareness in communities of color on eating disorders mm. and the concept of decolonizing our bodies, decolonizing the way we view our bodies, and also uncovering how social oppression and violent history can are all connected to how and why people of color have eating issues. Oh, I definitely have eating issues. I mean, everything in our lives growing up was around food. You're eating too much. You're not eating enough. The nicknames that they give us, you're either la gorda or la flaca. Right, right. You're never in between. And it's always a commentary of, ay, mira, está muy flaca. Ay, mira, ha ganado peso. Ay, mira... Te serví un plato y no lo estás comiendo. And the Latino community has absolutely no qualms about telling you exactly what they think about your body and what they think right. that it should look like. I remember my aunt came from Chile and I was like, I haven't seen you in so long. Oh my God. And she was like, oh, estás gordita. I'm like, cool. Hi. Hi. Right. Yeah, and my tía, same <laughs> thing. Every Sunday. <laughs> and that's what we try to address with MPP is the double standards. Of yeah. around body image and food in our communities because it's a very chaotic um, relationship we, ha we have with food. For instance, we can never deny our family a plate of food, right? Each time yeah. we're offered food, we have to accept or there's that pressure. Yep. And then, but, but then again, as soon as you start gaining weight, your family doesn't hesitate to tell you. Oh, yeah. So there's a lot of double standards and, and misunderstandings about And confusion, especially for you, how to view food and how to be at peace with food. Oh, true story. My mother, I was standing in the kitchen one day and she's sitting in the den so she can see me um, kind of, you know, maybe like 15 feet away or something. And she goes, oh my gosh, your butt is so big. And I go, thanks, mom. And she goes, no, really, I don't think you recognize how big your butt is. Here, Mika, I'm going to take a picture of it and send it to you so that you can see wow. it from my angle. And she did. She sent it to me. And she goes, <laughs> Mika, pa que sepas. And I remember seeing that being like, I can't believe you just did that. And then, of course, I screenshotted the entire conversation and sent it to like five friends. I'm like, does your mother do this? And oh, they're wow. like, Uh, no, that's no. just yours. <laughs> Mija, in case you didn't know, let me take a photo and send it to you. That's a real thing. Yeah. And the relationship that we have with food is so like predicated by our family members and the women in our lives, too. Because I remember my grandma, she refused to eat in front of people. Like she didn't want any, she was so weird. She didn't want anyone to see her eating. And when you would give her food, she would automatically say, no, I'm not hungry, even though she was hungry and we, everyone knew she was hungry. I have a tia like that. And she would be like, no, 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 you eat it, you eat it. And I was like, oh my God, you know, like she died like three years ago. And like my my grandpa was getting really sick. So I had family coming in from Chile. And when my, my two aunts and my mom got together, um, we were at the dinner table and they all started doing that. And I was like, oh, my God, like they have they inherited that from my grandma where like they can't deal with food for some reason. Like they can't deal with ha being given it. My aunts were all like, oh, no, 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 you eat it. Oh, no, 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 you eat it. Oh, no, I can't. I can't eat it. another bite. I'm like, you guys haven't eaten anything. I was like, I'll eat it. If you guys yeah. stop fighting. I will eat it. Yeah, that's definitely a sign of uh, unhealthy relationship with food. Oh, yeah. Yeah. we all have it. I 
I'm an emotional eater, as we've learned from another episode that we've done. And from life. And from life. (laughs) And for anybody who knows me in person and when I have emotional, stressful days and I have to have my dollar cone, which I believe does not count because it's only a dollar. Therefore, it does not exist in calories or in my checkbook because it's a dollar. And if you pay cash, it really didn't count. That's my justification. But my point to this, emotional eating. My mother is an emotional eater, and we've learned those things from her. And that's one of the hardest cycles to break because it's how you self-soothe for many people or avoid right. avoid soothing for some. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, if it's not going to be drugs, if it's not going to be gambling, if it's not going to be unhealthy relationships, it might be food, right? And for a lot of people – that's food is everywhere, right? And for a lot of people, that's their first object they use as a way to escape or a way to vent, as a way to cope. It's in uh, a dysfunctional form of living and, and just making it through in reality. So tell us more about how you're using um, body positivity in driving cultural awareness, specifically for the Latino audience. Well, I think first off, one of the things that MPP focuses on is the importance of identity and cultural affirmation. And I feel for a lot of brown folks in the U.S., we have a very strange identity because, first of all, like we're not from here, we're not from there. Mm-hmm. And secondly, our schools don't teach us our history properly. And then our families, because the way they have been taught is to hide whatever indigenous or Indio that we have in us. So we struggle struggle with like identity and historical amnesia, where we don't know where we're going and we don't know where we come from. And um, for me, MPP, like that's that's an opportunity for me to address the our history. Maybe good or maybe bad. We need to know this because you can't cure what you don't know. Mm, absolutely. So, how does body positivity tie into cultural awareness? Well, first of all, is realizing that the way we experience our bodies, like on a daily basis, and how we view our bodies, is shaped by our environment. Right. Like, for instance, in Fiji, when um, they introduced American or westernized media, they noticed an increase of women there having eating disorders when before there wasn't as many rates. So that shows that our environment can really impact the way we view our bodies on a daily basis. And things like skin lightening, too. Right. Or cellulite stuff, stretch marks and just um, this mass... Uh, production of this idea of what beauty is and how we need to look, right? I mean, it's something that doesn't pertain to our culture, right? It's not for many of us, right? Some of a lot of us are mixed, but um, it is not how our body is meant to look. But yet, we're fed this idea on a daily basis. But I think if we are able to learn the richness of our culture, mm-hmm. the richness and the resiliency. In our communities, we are able to celebrate ourselves and honor our bodies. I love that you touch on, um, Yvette, you kind of mentioned this, uh, Gloria, you as well, on what are the things that are praised? So being light-skinned, right? Um, Not looking Indio, 
Um, and those things are so deeply rooted. Uh, and hearing about our culture, I said this on a previous podcast as well, but I, in fact, our very first episode, I said this, I remember taking a Chicano Latino studies class in college. Um, and of course we're going through the Cesar Chavez movement. We're going through the migrant farm workers. And I remember sitting there being like, wait, I just, I just graduated high school. Like I was just in school and we never learned any of this. Exactly. Didn't get it till I was in college. So I felt like one, an idiot because everybody else in the class was very aware, right? They mm -hmm. were very aware and I was not. So I felt, um, and I went to a great school, took a ton of AP classes. So I felt, um, one, I definitely felt like the outsider for not knowing that and embarrassed about it. And then two, I remember that very first day of that class, we went through roll call and they're calling everyone's names. And I hear, and prior to them doing the roll call, the professor had asked like how many people identify as Latino, everyone's hand goes up. They go through the roll call, they get to my name, they go Audrey Bellis and the girl behind me goes, look at Mejorando La Raza right here. And I was stunned. I'd never heard that phrase. I went home and mm -hmm. asked my mom that. And then that entire that entire semester or quarter, whatever it was, I remember resenting that class so much. I felt like such an other. I didn't fit in. I was constantly told, oh, you're not like us. You don't understand our strife. You don't understand what it is to be a real Chicana. You don't even know your own history. And I felt so embarrassed about that. And you're right. We're not taught this. It doesn't make it into our history books. And it's really history from not that long ago. Mm -mm. Exactly. Exactly. And I don't feel they should have put you down. I think we need to encourage one another, especially if we're from a marginalized, even more marginalized communities, such as being women, you know, right. yeah. we, sh we should encourage one another because I feel you because I didn't learn all of this. I didn't learn it in college. I learned it through my community. Mm. Yeah. And um, for me, I don't feel like for me personally, I... I for me, college is, is some. I feel like I could learn those things on my own, if I, that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. um, just because even college, there's like a few courses that are more about POC, but everything else is like surrounded by white supremacy. And it's an institution of white supremacy exactly. teaching us about ourselves. Exactly. So it's like. Um, no, I totally get that. And then also college isn't necessarily accessible to everybody. Should we have to go to college to learn about our own selves and culture? No. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> um, today we were, well, I got into an exchange with somebody on social media because I posted a photo of Justin Trudeau, Trudeau? Prime Minister, Prime of, Minister Canada. of Canada. And we were like, oh my God, like he's so cute. And like, he's doing all these things. And then somebody was like, oh, like he's the biggest colonizer of all of them. He's terrible and you're not woke and you don't know. And I was like, whoa, what are you talking about? You know, and it's like, and I was like, well, you're not really making an argument for why I should be understanding of what it is that you're trying to get across to me. She's like, well, it's not my responsibility to teach you. And I'm like, well, uh, it's one thing to be like lecturing or trying to get your point across to other like white people about why brown lives matter, black lives matter. But it's another thing to kind of like recognize within our own communities, there aren't a lot of outlets to teach us about indigenous issues and things that have happened. You know what I mean? Right. And I feel like maybe, maybe what this person was saying is a little bit how brown girls are taught to adore white men. Mm -hmm. 
And mm. I think that's my, that's what she might be or they might be coming from is you're reinforcing that idea. I don't know. Or maybe this person has, the prime minister has other issues that haven't been so great that is not mainstream. Yeah, I have no idea. And I was like, well, why don't you tell me? And she's like, it's not my job to educate you. I'm like, okay, bye. I appreciate how she was, actually, I don't appreciate I'm being sarcastic. How, <laughs> how she was like, uh, what did she call you? Fake woke? You're now yeah. fake news, Yvette. Yeah. You're Trump status. Yeah, You're she, fake oh, she, woke. She also said to um, find a picture of Donald Trump because um, I could post that too. <laughs> She got real crazy on me. I was like, dude, I'm like trying to understand where it is that you're coming from. If you don't want to tell me, then okay. Right. And, you know, I, I, I have had similar encounters on social media. And my thing is that I, I recognize that we're in a very bad political climate right. and has everybody on edge. Mm -hmm. And some people have more trauma than others and they're more quick to right. react to something versus being clear of what exactly is bothering them so I just I just try to look at like the bigger picture and, and realize that oh shoot you know yeah I was like you know what I think this is a little bit more about you than it is about me right and I mean it's not it doesn't hurt to also spend the night sleeping on it yeah that's oh. what I always try to do sleep on it trolls are a special thing they really you know there's kind of no way to um to win with those. You either have to address it and get your point across and do like, you know, bye. Or uh, you get sucked into this engagement that just takes you down a rabbit hole. And that's what they want, right? They want to see that type of engagement where I think when it comes to integrity of the content that you're putting out, you just stand behind it and say, okay, I hear you. It's not welcome here. Your negativity is, is not what we're about and we're not going to feed into it. So, Gloria, while we're on the subject of trolls, you know, the content that you put out is incredibly positive, but I'm sure that doesn't always elicit the most positive reactions. How do you work, which would feel very shaming to somebody either on the other side or perhaps somebody even reading these types of comments and saying, gosh, I'm, I'm stuck in a shame cycle. What are ways that you use through your content, through your workshops to help people get out of those cycles and refocus on what's important? First of all, realizing that everyone is in a learning journey. Journey. So realizing that it's not personal, and that you've made, you might have said something that hurt someone, and maybe you might not understand it then and there. But there have been instances when I've been called out. I don't understand it then and there, and then time passes, and I've come to learn more about this subject, and then I'm like, okay, Got I it. messed up. But realizing that it's not. It's not the end of the world. We are all learning, all of us, all of us, and we all mess up. And those opportunities when you're called out is a loving action in many times because it humbles you. And not any person comes up to you, will come up to you and say you messed up. Like some people will let us slide by and you don't get to learn. And the times that I've been called out, it hurts a lot. And yeah, I might beat myself up, but then realize that we are all learning and in those opportunities I get to learn the most so just learn like you know just be humble and just keep trying that's all you could do really yeah we were saying uh off air you were telling us a little bit about your workshops and how you employ um 
this concept of ground rules at the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit more about that for our audience? So when I go to, for instance, this last weekend, I was in Oakland with Jessica Salgado, and we did a discussion on chubbiness, desirability, and and romance. Like, what are our experiences as chubby or frat people dating? Mm. And although it was in a workshop, but in the discussion we settled some, we established some ground rules. And one of them was, first of all, to not health troll or no diet culture within our discussions, because especially for those that were raised as girls, we have this diet culture embedded in us, ingrained in us that even when I'm hosting my circles or whatever, I could sometimes see the conversation turn into what to eat, when to eat, how much to eat. So first of all, no health trolling, no food shaming, no weight loss talk, and no diet tips. Because as it is, we already got all of that out there. So there's no point in bringing these these topics into certain spaces because we get it enough. And also not to state numbers such as calories or weight or whatnot because these tend to really overwhelm people with eating disorders and survivors even of eating disorders. So it's best not to state numbers. Also don't describe other people's bodies and challenge the ways you define value, sexiness, attractiveness, and and all of that. So challenge the ways you perceive beauty, in other words. So I that's those are the ground rules that I abide with when I'm presenting or trying to create a, a space for for folks to feel safe and not feel like they're going to get attacked about their bodies or their diet. Yeah. And you've lectured across the country, right? Yes. And so what are some of the similar stories that you hear from women when it comes to their body image? Like, is there like a commonality in the types of things that you hear or is everybody different? I feel there's two things. First off, we I feel like for brown brown women and a lot of brown individuals in general, we tend to really beat ourselves up and we're really tough on ourselves. We really are. And secondly, I'm shocked at how many brown women and girls have come up to me and told me that they struggled in silence. Mm. And how all of these folks are not being included in eating disorder research and uh. not bringing us help or, or aid or any of that. So those are the two main things that we're really tough on ourselves, especially students. And sec- like we don't forgive ourselves. And secondly, like there's no research being done on brown folks with eating issues. You know what's interesting about that? Um, as you were... As you were saying those things, and I'm thinking of commonalities, and uh, to your previous point about um, not having discussion around calories and diet and stuff like that, I was trying to think of what my earliest recollection of being aware of food and how much I eat and being told um, descriptive images about when I was little, I had chubby thighs. I still have chubby thighs, Um, but being called la gordita. Right. And I had a cousin who was my age and we grew up together and she was always la flaca and la prieta. She was dark and skinny. And I was I was la gordita. I had big thighs and I and I had tias who would tell me, oh, mija, let me just pinch you just a little bit. You're so soft and pudgy. And I can remember I think some of my earliest memories are definitely around that, around that description, around being told you're not thin enough or this won't fit you. Mm. That I distinctly remember. And in fact, my mom 
has, um, I mean, I guess I always thought it was funny until I just framed it in this context, has an early video from like my second or from like my third birthday or something where I'm asking with every dress that I opened from the birthday party, will it fit? Will it fit? Oh, that's so sad. And now that I think about it, I'm like, oh my gosh, of course. Like I, of course that's so deep rooted. And I think about growing up through adolescence. I can remember in middle school, um, hearing that one of my tias was doing some type of licuado cleanse and she would like blend melon with all kinds of other stuff. And she would eat that for just that for like 72 hours and like guaranteed to lose however much weight. And I remember I used to have a calendar where I would mark my juice days and I was in middle school. That's so sad. I totally remember that. And now that I think about it, like having those discussions with my friends being that young about weight, not eating this. If your friend has this outfit, can you also fit into it? It's, it completely permeates our lives. Yeah. I remember growing up with mostly white girls as my friends, like borrowing clothes. Like that was – because you know everyone, when you're in middle school, you borrow each other's clothes. Like that's what you do. And like I was always – never the right size and I'm not even particularly like curvy I'm just like I describe myself as robust (laughs) (laughs) and um I just remember like always having that anxiety of like oh no I'm not gonna be able to borrow anything oh no like their clothes isn't gonna fit me and I guess that really does stick with you I remember like going shopping with them and like crying in the dressing room because I felt like oh my god I'm so fat and I'm so ugly and like going to the doctors and being like, am I overweight? Am I overweight? And my doctor would be like, no. You're, I still cringe. You're fine. I don't I don't look at the scale. I refuse to look as an adult. I'm a grown woman and I still can't look at the scale. I'm like, wait, let me take off everything extra <laughs> before you do it. Um Yeah. Ahead. And I mean a lot of that's the same experience of a lot of brown folks, especially girls. And it does leave an imprint versus maybe two hundred years ago there was no such thing as what we're talking today. So this this particular focus on diet culture is is a phenomenon, really, and it's really um, hurting a lot of folks. So let's flip this on its head. Tell us more. When I hear body pos- positivity, what does that actually mean for people? Like, what is body positivity besides saying, I love my... Do you remember the children's book, um, it had a little pig on the front. It was pink. And it was, I like me. I like my toes. I like my hair. I like my body. And it was a it was a, um, a little piggy, not quite Miss Piggy, but a little piggy. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to have to go look at this for Sunday family dinner. My mom still has it. And it was literally called I Like Me. And it was all the things that you like about yourself. When I think body positivity, I think that. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, within the last few years, it's really hit the mainstream media and for me body positivity is creating an environment where people can easily fall in love with themselves Mm. and a lot of people just folk it's to me it's not just an individualistic experience It's, it's, it's a community experience because what's the point of encouraging folks to love themselves like for instance immigrants brown immigrants in this country right now who what's I mean, how difficult is it to radically love yourself when the president of this country is letting you know that you're disposable and you're not wanted here and you're less than. So in order for body positivity to succeed, we need to have drastic changes in our society. 
And I think that's what the mainstream movement fails at, that it's an intersectional thing. It's not just, oh, me, I wake up loving myself. Mm-hmm. No, it, to me, and, and it's not about being beautiful. I think beautiful is overrated. And I always say, own your ugliness. Own your own your, your creative way and your uniqueness. It's not about being beautiful because when do you hear men being told to be beautiful? No. So beautiful is a gender specific <laughs> thing that is meant to just keep us changing, changing our bodies with whatever's currently defined as beautiful. Right. So, I, I, yeah, it's it's a bigger issue. How does this relate specifically to indigenous experience and colonialism or colonialism yeah so for instance before european contact uh there was native indigenous smaller communities right or tribes or whatnot Mm -hmm. so when europeans came through what we know now as columbus Mm -hmm. uh we, you know, first of all, we learned about Columbus being a hero, adventurous, an explorer, and he discovered the D- quote unquote discovered, America. discovered, right, right. Yeah. So that's how we learned about that. But in reality, what our teachers forget to tell us is how how this man helped introduce, if not the biggest genocide in history. Right, right? they don't talk about that, or they don't talk about how he, he used to chop off hands of indigenous slaves when they wouldn't bring him enough gold right like they don't talk about that yeah or how he allowed his men to rape children and native women they don't talk about that right so when you know when the europeans came through colonialism which is acquiring the land and acquiring the people and acquiring the land that 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 does not belong to them that's not native to them so with this mass violence then came are the way we view ourselves. And through colonialism, we learn because our skin color is darker that we're less than and that we're inherently ugly and violent and savages. And then our women are seen as just bodies, not even as people. And um, although that happened a long time ago, like over 500 years ago, that legacy of colonialism still informs all of us today how we view our bodies. And the same goes for the black community. Mm-hmm. Slavery, although, again, it happened a long time ago, still impacts the black community today. And I'll give you one example. For instance, the hypersexual like sexuality in the black community, right? The way genitals are stereotyped, black genitals are stereotyped. Mm-hmm. And this all comes from slavery. Because in order for slave masters to increase populations and profit, they would rape black women. And in order to justify them raping black women, they portrayed black women as promiscuous and as a sapphire, right? Mm -hmm. So missionary attitudes vilified, vilified uh, black bodies and black and, and to the point where black people weren't even seen as people. Yeah. I just right? as hypersexual beings. And that lingers till today. Right. And sexuality is part of our, our identity. So that's just one example of how colonialism, this mass violence that destroyed families, uh, raped women, they stole our lands, they killed us through disease, they killed our environment, our water. You name it, like all these things, although they're huge, they impact us in little ways 
that shape us overall. And um, one concept that I really focus on, one theory of, of Dr. Maria Yellow Horse Braveheart is historical trauma. Mm. How trauma, although trauma in one generation can literally affect the behavior and the DNA of the following generation. So can you imagine trauma after trauma, violence after violence to uh, bodies of color and how all that trauma accumulates and it's we are struggling with that still today and it's unaddressed exactly and we don't they don't teach us our history in school our families don't tell us and then we over here crazy yeah <laughs> and then we're wondering why our families and communities are messed up no we're being told to assimilate quite frankly that, we are actually being told we're, that's why we we're don't gaslight it on a regular basis being told these these things don't happen you're making this up in your head yeah, the forced assimilation is the worst. And then even things like co- denying cultural things, right? We talk about shame here. We're talking about even the title, Brown Girls Rising. We ask people oftentimes on this podcast, what does it mean to you to you, to identify as a brown girl? Do you identify that way? A lot of people only have one of two responses. Either they're super proud or they're super ashamed because it's never anything in the middle, which is very... In- representative of the female experience. You're either too much or not enough, but you're never, we're like Goldilocks. You're never just quiet enough, right? And so even as being brown, quote unquote, it's like the girl asked me, mejorando la raza. Well, my mom, even my mom, right? Married the white guy. Now we have more white guys in the family. My dad was just the token first. Uh, But we see things like this everywhere. And so absolutely, it's permeated in our culture. Uh, No wonder we're not seeing it other places because it's shameful and people don't want to talk about it. And that's the thing about shame. It can only exist in the dark. If we're not willing to have the conversations and bring it to light, it will always be a shameful thing and it will always be something that haunts us. And that was one of the most... Yeah, because I remember reading about that because my um, one of my concentrations in my master's was diasporic lit. And one of the main things that we learned about was the cultural transmission of trauma and how that kind of becomes a part of the everyday life of the people, not even the people who experience the trauma, but the people who are descendants of those who have. And something that really stuck with me, um, I was reading Kimberly Crenshaw's original uh, essay on intersectionality intersectionality Mm -hmm. yeah and um she was talking about how the ways that white feminism fails brown women is because we have all these assumed stereotypes that women have and those aren't those aren't necessarily true for brown women like we are not seen as chaste we are not seen as something like a precious thing that needs to be protected our virginities have never been that Mm -hmm. and it's like the way that intersectionality works is that it meets us at the middle. It meets us and it pre-assumes those things so that we can go from there without ignoring it. And I thought that was really powerful. And I wanted to ask you who some of your feminist icons are. So I, I'm a big fan of Ana Castillo, who's, who coined the term Chicanista and has influenced my work. I also admire Dr. Joy DeGroy, who talks about post-traumatic slave syndrome and bell hooks because she's brave enough to talk about love in communities of color. Yeah. I just was reading um, Ain't I a Woman Mm -hmm. and that um, my sister was bringing up Sojourner Truth to me. And I was like, 
I feel like I've heard of her like in the periphery, but I've never actually like yeah. read her work or learned about her. And I'm like, that is such a travesty that even, you know, freeing themselves from s- slavery, like being an abolitionist, a black female abolitionist, like she's been totally erased and all of the agency. Of- oh, romanticized to the point where she seems like a like a comic hero yeah. that's, not, that's not real so how does that inspire black girls today right they're you know? not even in charge of their own agency and freeing themselves white women came and freed them from slavery and like that's really that's not what happened dang that that's <laughs> poignant that was a mic drop right there yeah. if I've heard you say one <laughs> slaying it well Gloria it's been such a pleasure having you where can people connect with you to find out more about your work and what you're up to I'm most active on Instagram under Nalgona Positivity Pride and working on my website right now. I also have an Etsy store where I create merch that combines body positivity, body image, eating disorder awareness and cultural affirmation. So you can find that at the Nalgona Positive Shop at Etsy. Amazing. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. You can find us uh, online as well. I'm at Audrey Bellis. And I'm at Yvette Dorama, and it's the French Yvette and D-O-R-A-M-A. This has been Brown Girls Rising. Bye. This episode of Brown Girls Rising was brought to you by Nylon Espanol and recorded at Maker City LA in sunny downtown Los Angeles. We hope it's inspired you. For more, visit browngirlsrising.com. Follow us socially on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Worthy Women LLC and Brown Girls Rising for future episodes. Until next time.